Good morning. Welcome Put to the Heart of Sports on. with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen. We are thrilled to join you on 610 ESPN, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, we are powered by ELEC 825, and we are back here this week again. Uh, are you set up in front of your TV yet, or are you going to move to your TV later? Because I know that there is a lot that will be on. I will you're going to get a comfy spot on the couch. I will be camping out with my television. There is lots of sports watching, even though there aren't lots of sports games. Because you have the holiday documentary airs tonight at 7 on ESPN. But and you have a conflict now. I know, because there's a big Sixers game on. The Sixers 1983 finals is going to be on this weekend. Game one is tonight. We're most, well, I won't tell you how he did. Pretend it's a new game. <laughs> Even though no. it's only, it's 37 years old. But then, And then you have Sunday. You have Lance Armstrong part two, just so you can get annoyed and see what an arrogant human being looks like. So if you missed it uh, on our social media feeds and, and out on the internet, we started doing a midweek show, our midweek OTA. We talked a little bit about part one of the Lance documentary. Um, neither of us surprised that he does not come off any better than you thought going into it. Uh, are you looking no, you, forward? You what, is your, what is the thing that you're looking for? Okay, you were going to ask no, me a I question. I want to ask PR. you a question. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, change, let's switch this up a little bit. Let me ask okay. you a question. You're the PR guy. You're, yes. You're the social media guy. I would have told him not to sit down. There you go. Look, I didn't if, even have to ask the question. If you, if you don't have anything to say that will help the situation, mm-hmm. it's better off saying nothing. And nothing that he's saying is going to change the narrative to Lance is a better guy because he comes off looking like everybody thought Lance did. No, and, and so he's and not usually, his best credible messenger. If Lance wants to change his reputation, he should have all the people that he helped tell the story of him helping them, not him going out there trying to justify his actions to save his reputation. It's just not the way it works. Yeah, but you know why he wanted to do it. He thinks right. that he can he can he can negate everything everybody else says, but he's not. He's all he's doing is confirming it and making it worse. He he which literally is, is gasoline on that fire. Which, which is, is which why, is why uh, that documentary is so good. Is because he literally it, it. This is watching a car crash. It is you, watching it in slow motion, going. Wait, you have time to turn away and not hit that car? Nope, you're going right for it. He. That's, that's what you see when you watch and listen to him. He has no remorse. It does not appear for anything that has been done, anything that was said, and that becomes apparent. I told you when we talked. I, I feel like they're trying to justify doping. And I mean, I'm not naive to think that it wasn't there, but the the black and white nature of we either did this or we didn't, that's not quite true. Uh, And the way that you try to rewrite history. Yeah, but here's the deal. It's a safe drug and (laughs) this and that. Yeah, but even even if it was, even if everybody did it, you now have the benefit of hindsight. And as you get older, you're supposed to get wiser. And and he's neither. He's just... he's. He just comes across as somebody that says, yeah, that's the way it was. This is what I had to do. And I'm not remorseful. I wish it could have been done. I wish he would have said, I wish things were different and I could have done it differently. But I don't get that sense from him at all. This is a pattern for you, though. You don't necessarily like it when the person telling their story refuses to acknowledge slash admit slash express remorse for their actions when everybody else knows they were wrong. It's called, like that. it's called maturity. It's called growing up. And I, I'd like to think that that all of us mature and get wiser as we get older. Unfortunately, I'm wrong. But but you do have somebody on the line now who is getting older and wiser and writing better than ever. 
he's probably a very busy man right now. Todd Zalecki, thank you for making a few minutes to join us. Uh, your new book is out, Doc, The Life of Roy Halliday. Uh, great timing, great reviews out there. How you doing, man? Good. How are you guys doing? Thanks for having me. We cannot complain. We've been reading the book all week. Jeff has been cramming and telling me about which chapters I need to go to. Uh, it's been a, a very fun read, to be honest. I am beyond impressed with just how many people you talked to for this book. You talked to over 100 people. Where did this come from, and, and how did you get here to, to the end product? Yeah, you know, it's, it, Roy, Roy obviously had a great baseball story to tell, which is, you know, first-round draft pick, almost throws a no-hitter in a second big league start. You know, it has a terrible 2000 season, a historically terrible 2000 season. Uh, still has the single season highest ERA in, in baseball history, as a matter of fact. Gets sent down to A ball and then kind of you know resurrected his career both mentally and physically to become a Hall of Fame pitcher. So that always intrigued me. I wanted to kind of dig into that and you know how does somebody go that far down from being that far up and then just kind of come all the way back up again. But the other part that always interested me about Roy was he. After his career was over, he wanted to kind of give back. He struggled so much mentally uh, throughout his life, on the field, off the field, and he really kind of hooked his wagon to Harvey Dorfman, the famous uh, sports psychologist. Harvey, Harvey passed away in 2011, and after his career, Roy said, you know, I, I kind of want to do what Harvey did. I want to work with people on the mental side of the game. And th- that was amazing to me because you think about how much money he made, his stature in the game, you know, Hall of Fame pitchers with $150 million in the bank don't go and work as a mental skills coach at a minor league complex. They just don't. You know, they either just golf and fish the rest of their life, they become a broadcaster, they become a club ambassador, play a little golf. That's about it. And uh, But Roy, I think, understood that he wasn't alone out there in terms of his struggles. And if he could help other people out, he wanted to do that. And I thought that was a very noble thing. Todd, we've talked to in the last month, we talked to Don Carmen, who studied under um, Dorfman and Jamie, Jamie Moyer, who also credits um, Dorfman. What is it about this guy? What, why is he revered in the baseball community, especially with pitchers, as much as he is? You know, I think the thing with Harvey and talking to a lot of people that, that worked with him and knew him well, Harvey knew how people thought. He knew their fears. Uh, but in terms of like the psychology aspect of it, he wasn't this, you know, Raul Abania, like, I use this quote in the book. He's like, Harvey wasn't a picture yourself on a boat on a lake with a cool breeze. You know, he wasn't that type of guy. He was, okay, listen, I understand you're feeling this pressure. That's totally normal. You're a human being, but you know what? Suck it up. You're a big league ball player. You got to start acting like it. Like there was an accountability with him. There was, he talked to players you know, there was tough, it was a lot of tough love, and he talked to players unlike other people talked to him. I mean, these players have been coddled for most of their life, told how great they are, told that, you know, you can do whatever you want to do. And I think Harvey gave him some real honesty that, quite frankly, they, they needed and, and they appreciated. And I think Roy was one of those guys. I mean, Harvey demanded accountability from Roy, and, and he got him thinking the right way. And for Roy, a big part of his success and his turnaround was thinking the right way, behaving the right way, acting the right way. Roy was motivated after his career to want to help other people. But what I was most fascinated was 
your talk and the things that you found out about his upbringing, which kind of led to his motivation for the way that he wanted to act after his career. What did you learn that was most fascinating to you or you considered the, the key to Roy's upbringing and what motivated him? Well, the, what I thought was interesting was everybody kind of knew this story. It was almost kind of like uh, became like a mythical thing or, you know, a uh, mythological thing. He, you know, his dad built him a pitching mound in his basement and he would throw bullpen sessions and he would work out. But it wasn't, it, it was, I mean, he had to work, it was work, you know, it was, it was almost like a job. Uh, he was pushed really hard as a kid. On one hand, without his dad pushing him really, really hard, maybe he doesn't become a first round draft pick, make the big leagues, have a Hall of Fame career. On the other hand, uh, I think it put a lot of pressures on him and affected him emotionally and, and you know, in a way that he carried with it his, his entire life. And so much so that, again, without being pushed that hard as a kid, maybe he doesn't have the, the, the career that he had. Maybe he doesn't make the money that he made. But I thought it was really noteworthy, and I, I wrote a lot about this in the book, that when he started to coach his two boys, he made a specific effort not to coach them like he was coached as a kid. He absolutely did not want his kids to feel pressure to succeed. Uh, he wanted them to do well. You know, he pushed them to do well, but he didn't want them to feel like, like almost a dread of, if I don't succeed today, I'm going to get it. You know, um, he made players and parents of players for his teams that he coached sign contracts. And for the parents, it was a almost like a behavioral contract. You will not yell at your child when he's on the field. You will not yell at your child uh, at practice, at games. Uh, you will behave a certain way. If you do not behave a certain way, you will not be allowed to attend the games. And if you don't follow that rule, then your son won't play. So uh, you have a choice to make. He wanted, he did not want kids to feel the way that he felt at times growing up. And I thought that that was a very uh, kind of poignant thing that he did uh, late in his life. Yeah, Todd, you had a great line in the book. They were not raising baseball players. They were raising young men who happened to play baseball. Yes, and that was kind of the, 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 the point he was trying to make because, you know, I mean, picture it, right? Like if Roy Halladay lived here in Philly in the offseason or whatever, or he was retired – and Roy Halladay was coaching your kid or Roy Halladay was coaching your your kid's, you know, opposing team, like you might be tempted to go up to him. And this is what happened to him a lot. He, people, Parents would come up to him all the time and go, uh, can you, what can I do to get my kid a D1 scholarship? What can I do to get my kid drafted? I, I, you know, I, he's, he's missing something. Give me some tips. Give me some tricks. And, and he would say, listen, you got to teach your kid to have fun first. He has to he has to enjoy the game first and foremost. If he enjoys the game, then he'll want to work hard at it. And and that was his kind of his stock answer again because he knew the pressure that he felt and he didn't like that feeling. So he wanted to instill on these parents, you know, hey, don't don't push your kid. Let's it, this is a game. Enjoy it first. I asked John Barr last week of ESPN when we interviewed him with the documentary whether. Roy was able to enjoy his success himself because he was searching for that perfection. It seems to come through with the kids. At the same time, you mentioned his upbringing with his coach as his father. It sounded like in Toronto, his relationship with Jim Fergosi, Chris Carpenter as well, also sort of shaped what he didn't necessarily like as a coach. Can you talk a little bit about how that influenced him and played into the 2000 season and struggles there? 
Yeah, you know, Jim Fergosi, you know, famous, obviously legendary in Philadelphia for how he helped the, the 93 Phillies win the NL pennant. But a, a older Jim Fergosi, a, a hard-scrabbled Jim Fergosi, did not mix well with, with Roy Halladay and Chris Carpenter. They were two young kids, high school draft picks, first-round draft picks, feeling a lot of pressure. And Fergosi had expectations for them, and, and, and Jim was not great for young kids coming up. He was great for veteran players, um, you know, but, but Roy felt he, you know, he kind of felt like, you know, Jim would almost have his hand on the bullpen phone as soon as he stepped in the mound because he's like, this kid's going to blow it, I know it, so I might as well just get the bullpen up. And, and you know, he, Roy felt like, if he walked down the hallway and Fergosi saw him, he would go the other way. He, you know, he would hear him, you know, in his office, kind of ripping him, and um, and that really affected him. And he, and he, he basically his and all of his self worth went with how other people looked at him, how other people treated him, what he thought other people thought about him, and that was kind of a turning point for him when he met Harvey Dorfman and started looking at Harvey Dorfman. He realized that he had to do it for himself. And once he started doing it for himself and stopped caring so much about what other people thought about him, his dad, his family, friends back home in Denver, Jim Fergosi, etc., uh, things got a lot easier for him. It took the pressure off. That clearly helped to get to his success. But in prepping for this book, like I mentioned, you talked to over 100 people. You got a sense of what people did think of him. Can you talk about some of the consistent stories you heard about Doc, either the man, the teammate, or the player throughout this? Well, yeah, you know, it, it was amazing how much everybody I talked to still thinks so highly of him, you know, and, and it, it's interesting because after the way he died in the plane crash and, and everything that the fallout kind of following that, you know, you know how with social media is, you see some pretty heartless things on there. And um, these people don't, you know, they, Roy struggled, you know, what happened happened. You know, the aftermath is the aftermath, but that does not change their opinion of Roy Halladay. They thought he was a tremendous person, a tremendous teammate. You know, I was I was amazed at how many people I talked to. I talked to a handful of people that would well up and, you know, shed a tear as they talked about Roy because, it, you know, and, and not, not just like, I'm not just talking about Brandy. I'm talking about guys that caught him 10, 15 times during the 2001, 2002, 2003 seasons, you know, and the guys that can't even really claim to be close friends with them. But he, he had such a tremendous impact on him, uh, on them, that they, they carry that with them, that positive feeling that hey, this guy worked hard, he cared so much, he was a good person. You know, the guy, same guy that dropped over $200,000 in watches for his Phillies teammates and clubhouse guys and bat boys after he threw his perfect game 10 years ago tonight. Do you get a sense from talking to the players more recently that they're concerned about uh, the the stories that are now coming out about him, that they are getting defensive of his legacy? Uh, you know, I, I think they just I, – I just think that they want people to know that – they don't want Roy Halladay's legacy to be that. And that's what I tried to accomplish in the book. You know, I wrote about all of that stuff. You know the you know the, the the day that he that he died and and what was the struggles that were leading up to that and and the the fallout after that, but I tried to kind of put it all into perspective and that and, and, and so I think that's any former teammates 
that are maybe feeling that way, I, I actually totally understand it because they don't. There was so much more to him than that. It doesn't change all the good things that he do that he did and all the you know all the good that he was. Um, you know, and like like Brandy said has said many times, you know, like everybody has a right to struggle. You know, like Roy Halladay, he's just a human, just like like we all are. And you know, the fact that he was struggling uh, with his mental health, the fact that he was struggling physically, the fact that he was battling addiction, doesn't make him a bad person now. You know, it doesn't take away all the good that he did. It doesn't mean he wasn't a good father and, and didn't didn't care about his family and friends because he did. I enjoyed some of the catchers that you talked to throughout this, and it seemed like as he got more confident, his relationship with them changed. Can you talk about uh, the fear that some of the catchers did have and the relationship <laughs> they had with him? Yeah, that was that was fun to talk. I tried to talk to as many catchers as possible because, just because I thought they would have some of the best stories, and it turns out they did have some of the best stories. So early in his career, you know, he was a young guy. He didn't have a lot of confidence. He would go into these these meetings with uh, the pitching coach and the catcher before game, and it was you know the pitching coach and the catcher would kind of run through things. But as Roy started getting more confident, he started taking control, and he started to do a lot more homework on hitters. And he you know he would keep notebooks and 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 legal pads on on different hitters that he would face, and he started to run those meetings. And it got to the point where he told the catchers. If I tell you not, to, I'm not throwing a cutter away to this guy. Do not call for a cutter away to this guy because I'm not <laughs> going to throw it. And it was kind of funny. I, I talked with Brian Schneider, who caught him a few times with the Phillies, and he said, you know, it's like you'll go over this, and then all of a sudden, the seventh inning, you're 90 pitches in, and you'll call for a backdoor, uh, you know, sinker or whatever. And and Roy told you four hours ago, no backdoor sinkers, and all of a sudden, you're like, oh my god. And he'll step off the mound to look at you like, dude. <laughs> Four hours ago, I specifically told you not. To, I was not going to throw this pitch to this guy, and then the, the catcher was like, "Oh my bad, my bad." So, the, so there was a lot of that. But, but if he trusted you, and if you saw if you saw something as a catcher, he would also allow you to maybe veer off a little bit. What didn't happen often, but uh, he would he, he would allow a catcher to kind of maybe go off script a little bit if they if they saw something. What's it like to be some somebody like you who who writes stories day by day? to do this kind of project, to spend all of the time interviewing over 100 people, what's it like to finish that, and, and how proud are you of this project? Uh, finishing, it was, it was so much work, um, you know, and, and I just wanted, to, I wanted it to, I wanted to do his story justice, and, you know, and I, I talked to people about it, I said I was not interested in writing a salacious tell-all about, you know, the final years of Roy Halladay's life, because I still, I do very much believe that there was so much more to him than that, and uh, and, and that does not negate all of the good that he did and all the great things that he accomplished on the field, and so I, I, I really took that task personally uh, as, as I wrote the book, and so, you know, finishing it, it was, it was, it was very, very stressful, because I wanted to make sure I got it right. I, I feel like I did a pretty pretty good job with it, um, and to to have the reaction that I've gotten from people has just been tremendous. You know, the the people seem to be enjoying the book. They seem to kind of get the theme of the book, uh, the idea that I had in in writing it, and, and so that's been really nice. Um, people have been saying a lot of really nice things. Well, I read slower than Jeff, so I'm going to finish it. 
I promise. <laughs> but we're definitely enjoying how it is. Before we let you go and give the book one more plug, I got to ask you, since we have you, is there going to be baseball this year? Or are we just going to hear about a bunch of rich guys fighting all summer? Yeah, you know, I, I tell you what, if, if you if I was on talking to you guys last week, I, I would have said, hey, guys, relax. Don't worry about it. This is all talk right now. It's just hard, hardcore negotiating tactics. They're going to get this figured out. But after what I've you know, read and heard over the past couple of days, I'm a little bit more pessimistic. I still have oh. to believe that both sides are smart enough, and they are smart, very smart on both sides, that they, if they would not come to agreement and just cancel baseball this season, that it would be really catastrophic for the sport. I really think, think back to 94, how hard it was to recover from that. And, and that was just everything else in the world was fine. I mean, everything in the world right now is not fine. And so to, to not play baseball, I think, would just be so damaging. Hopefully they'll come to their senses. That was my take with Jeff the other day. He, on the other hand, believes that while they're smart people, they're absolutely dumb enough to not come up with a deal. The book <laughs> I is hope he's wrong. Hey, Jeff, I hope you're wrong. I hope he's wrong, too. Believe me. He hopes he's wrong, too. He would never like to be wrong more than for this. <clears throat> the book is Doc, <laughs> The Life of Roy Halliday. Todd Zalecki, thanks so much for giving us a little time. We wish you the best of luck with everything. We hope there's some baseball for you to cover soon. Yeah, thanks, guys. I appreciate you having me on. Take care. Have a great one. Jeff, uh, talking to people about Roy Halladay makes me want to go back and watch more Roy Halladay baseball. Uh, it just uh, – and I, I get the question that you ask about the defensiveness of some of the teammates because it does seem like Todd's book does a good job balancing his legacy. But some of the coverage now for the headlines is about – the challenges that he faced more in this documentary that we're going to see tonight than the successes. I thought, I think, I think you're right. Todd's book is a balanced approach to a complicated man. That, that's what people don't understand because he was so stoic when he was on the mound, because he was such a perfectionist, because he was so great at his craft and where, and everybody knows the story about how he had to go back to the minor leagues. Um, People don't want to see the flaws. They don't want to see that in their heroes and their icons and their athletes. And what what Todd does is balance that and give you the background of his life so you do understand the man more, uh, the father, the child, the, the husband, uh, the friend. But I think when you leave it, you still feel just as good having rooted for Doc and and almost cared about him even though you didn't know him. And I, I think that's I think I think the reluctance is in the documentary. It's not Todd's book. Todd's book is great. And I'm sure the documentary will be great. But the clips so far, the trailers that you've seen from the documentary are somewhat chilling. You know, having Brandy sit there in that chair in that big empty room and talk about how much she hates the word perfect is it still sends a, a, a chill down my spine so I could see if you were a teammate of him. And teammates are the, – the bond players have with each other in locker rooms is, is so tight. And to see that – I could see if I was a teammate who, who was with him all those years, who adored the guy that he was on and off the mound. You see those clips, and even though there a lot of them are Brandy's own words or other players' own words or coaches' own words, just the way they've cut it up is – is chilling. So if I were a player, I'd be reluctant. When I heard her say that, I could relate. 
And I, you and I have talked about this and, and other people, that search for perfection is very difficult if you, if you crave that when nothing that you do short of that is acceptable for you to live with. That's really difficult. And the thing that I like that we're doing here is we're getting the full picture. We <clears throat> did the talk with Todd there. We're going to bring on one of his teammates in a minute, Shane Victorino, and get a feel from Shane about what it was like to be on the field with him and, and work with him. Jeff, you have any thoughts before we go to the interview with we're doing with him? We'll bring him on. Not to me, the best thing to do is to talk to one of the guys who got to stand behind him in, in center field and watch him pitch and also got to be in the locker room and, and know the guy that was off the mound. Uh, I'm excited to hear some stories. Let's go to an interview real fast here with Shane Victorino. We're thrilled to be joined on the show by World Series champion Shane Victorino. Shane, thanks so much for the time. How are you doing today, ma'am? Good. All is well. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're thrilled to have you. Uh, we figured there'd be nobody better to bring on and talk. Today is the 10-year anniversary of Roy Halladay's Perfect Game documentary airing tonight. We're going to be talking with Todd Zalecki, who has a book out. And we, we thought maybe getting the feedback of one of the guys who played with him would be great. Can you tell us a little about what it was like to be a teammate with Doc? Oh, man. I mean, you know, let's... I always say let's always stay in the positive. Obviously, that documentary is, you know, going to show and tell a story of, you know, what I think happens a lot at that level that a lot of people really don't get to see, um, you know, some of the demons, some of the things that we face as professional athletes. And, you know, we're definitely put on a pedestal to, you know, be this this persona of, you know, living this great life and, you know, uh, everything is fine and dandy, but little do a lot of people know that, you know, like I tell people, we're just like any other person, you know, just because we play a sport and we're able to do that, you know, there's things in life and things off the field that we face. And, you know, obviously watching what is, you know, being presented in this documentary and obviously the 10 year, uh, you know, anniversary of, of Doc's perfect game, um, you know, the positive side to all of that is, you know, the greatest and one of the most iconic right-handers. And if not the most, how can I say it? The most intense, the most prepared, the most, uh, you know, a guy that I would have gone to, 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 you know, work every day with hands down. Um, somebody that to me, if I had to build a pitching staff around of doc would have definitely been that guy that I would have built my team around. So, you know, the positives of that is that this guy was probably the most intense, as I said, the most prepared. And, you know, it, it, it's it's sad, um, you know, to see what is happening in the documentary. But again, like I told my wife, it's 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 the reality of life that people really need to see um, that really goes on on an everyday basis, you know, at, at with individuals at the highest level. Yeah, Shane, Shane our, our interest is in bringing on people like you to talk about the positives of Roy. We know that obviously every athlete has has his human side, but Roy is an iconic figure in this town and your team, the team that you were on, that those teams from that era are iconic teams for them. What was it like to be part, not just of, of playing behind Roy, because you had the pleasure of, of watching him as you're part of the game, but to be part of that perfect game? 
Oh, I mean, it's still one of those moments in my life, um, you know, that I can close my eyes and, and, and replay every single play. And I tell myself, like, and all I remember is standing out in center field going, hit every ball to me, hit every ball to me. I want to make every play. Um, and I'm sure every single person on the field felt that way. Um, but, again, it's it's who we knew was on the mound. I'm not saying that we played any differently for any other pitcher that was on the mound. But for some odd reason, when Doc took the mound, there was something that was – you know, that went in you internally because you know the preparation that this guy put in every single day. Um, you know, reliving that that moment, reliving that perfect game. I mean, I'm part of history because of Roy Halladay. Um, and, you know, the positive thing looking at that night is that the joy that we got to share together as a team, um, the excitement that was brought upon, you know, by Roy and everybody else and you know, obviously the watch that was given to us after, that just tells you the sign of, of what that kind of person that Roy really was. It wasn't ever about him. It was about the teammates that he played with and about, you know, the others that, that went out there every single night. And that's what I always remember about Roy. It wasn't about Roy Halliday. It was about everybody else. But yet he was the lead and he was a guy that we all followed behind and worked hard every single day, especially when he took the mound. Because, you know, as I said, the preparation that he put into that and you didn't want to be the guy to make the mistake or you didn't want to be that guy that cost Roy, you know, that perfect game or the no hitter or just a win in itself because of what and how he prepared to go about the game of baseball every single day. We heard so much about the the preparation and the work ethic. Can you talk a little bit about that for people who aren't familiar, just how prepared this guy really was? Uh, I plain and simple tell them this. I mean, if there was a five-hour plane ride, you know, most of us would probably take a nap. Most of us would probably play cars. Most of us would be walking around the plane. Not Roy. Roy was sitting in his seat dissecting his upcoming, uh, you know, appearance, uh, obviously dissecting his past appearance and just, basically preparing from A to Z for his next start. That was probably five days down the road or whenever that time was coming up. So, you know, as simple as that is what I tell people, that's how much this guy was prepared every single day, every single outing, every single pitch, every single inch of the game. I mean, you know, that's what made Roy Halladay, Roy Halladay. Shane, you're tied for the Phillies team record for all time playoff career hits, but two of those hits were at the beginning of that same season, the 2010 no-hitter in the playoffs. You got Roy all the runs he needed for that game. What was it like to play in that game, and when did you feel that something special was about to happen in that game? So I can tell you this before the game even started, and I vividly remember this moment, and I can tell that because it's it's I put you guys in this perspective. If I remember walking into the, I went to go see the chiropractor uh, right before the game and I walked in uh, and Roy was on the bike preparing and doing his normal routine in the gym. And I literally walked within inches of Roy on the bike. And I just remember walking by him and him not even like budging, like, or not even, you know, moving his eyeballs. And I look up and I got into the chiropractor's room and I looked up and I looked at the TV and it was Cliff Lee punching out 13 in Yankee Stadium as a Texas Ranger. And I remember telling the chiropractor, I said, man, I just walked by Doc, and he didn't even, like, budge or, like, nudge. Or I, and when I say I walked by, I mean, like, I'm literally almost bumped him because that's how, you know, where he was on the bike. And then I remember telling the chiropractor, I said, if Roy Halladay does not go out there and do something greater than what Cliff Lee 
had already done in New York and in Yankee Stadium, I'd be shocked. And lo and behold, yeah. what did Doc Holliday go out there and do? He went out and pitched a no-hitter and perfected, you know, a history, and he put another etch in the history books. So, as I said, it's one of those moments that I will vividly always remember because I was like, dude, this guy did not even, like, look at me. He didn't even budge of me walking literally right by him. But as I said, he was looking at what Cliff Lee was doing in Yankee Stadium. And I remember, as I said, telling myself when I lay down at that Cairo's table, like, dude, this dude is going to go out there tonight and want to do something better than what Cliff Lee had just done at Yankee Stadium as a Texas Ranger. A few weeks ago, we had Greg Greg Dobbs on, and he said that – you were one of the practical jokers on the team. Was there a lighter side of Doc, and did you ever play any jokes on him? Uh, it was far and few between. Uh, <laughs> you know, there was definitely a lighter side to Doc. You know, I tell people all the time, you know, Doc had his moments, and moments meaning he was very into, you know, remote controls and having fun and doing those kind of things. So, to me, Doc's playfulness was with us. Where, you know, we'd walk in the clubhouse. He had been there for five hours doing all his workouts and all these kind of things. And we'd be coming in the locker room doors and he'd be buzzing our towers with his remote control planes or, you know, the things and the gadgets that he played with every day. And to me, that was the lighter side of Doc that a lot of people didn't get to see. So there was a lot of that in, in, in an everyday basis that the normal person did not get to see. So, you know, there was definitely – I was not pulling pranks on Doc because I was not trying to face the consequences of what was going to happen after messing with, <laughs> with Roy Alvin. <laughs> Shane, uh, we ask everybody when they come on here about their minor league experience as far back as they can remember. Uh, Greg, when we talked to him, we talked to him about Alaska. We got to ask you, Great Falls, Montana, what was it like to play there? Well, I remember I cried for the first two weeks. Uh, You know, I left (laughs) as an 18-year-old from the island of Maui, you know, and basically, you know, been babied my whole life because family was everything. And I've had, you know, I was surrounded by a loving family and all of a sudden, that loving family was no longer there 24-7 to corral me, to help me work through the process of life. So I just remember the first two weeks, I cried. I just missed home. And once I got into the logistics of understanding what I really wanted to and what my dream was, I got over it. But, you know, I still will never forget that experience because it taught me a lot about life. It taught me a lot about leaving home at a young age, um, you know, really not being prepared um, to walk into minor league baseball. You know, but at the end of the day, it was my love. It was my passion. And sports was not so much the game of baseball. The game of baseball became the sport that I played and I fell in love with. But, you know, sports was always a part of my life. I played multiple sports growing up. So to understand that I was living a dream and having an opportunity to 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 have a career that was based around a sport, you know, made me and helped me guide me over those you know, obviously two weeks of, of hardship and missing my family and understanding that, you know, to me, that was everything. My family is, was my heart and my soul. And to not have that on an everyday basis, um, you know, was a shell shock. But as I said, once I overcame that, you know, the rest was history. And I really fell in love with what I was doing. Shane, you're a big part of Philadelphia history. Uh, before we let you go, what what is your most memorable moment from being in Philadelphia? It's definitely got to be my Boys and Girls Club, guys. I know a lot of people want to hear the moments about what I did on the field, but to me, my proudest moment that I've ever lived in that city is is leaving, you know, the legacy of a Boys and Girls Club there in Nicetown. That will last forever. Um, you know, I always tell people the great 
baseball player that played on the field will come along. Someone else will be the next great baseball player and put themselves on that pedestal and, and be loved in the city. But I can forever go down in history knowing that I left the mark in that city with my boys and girls club there in nice town. So to me, that is my proudest moment, obviously, as, a, as an individual who was able to do something in the city. But if you go, obviously, to the baseball side of things, it was definitely that moment where we were able to hold the trophy together in 2008 as World Series champions in the city of Philadelphia. Shane, we, we can't thank you enough for the time to talk about Doc. We, we'd love to have you on maybe another time, talk more about your career in, in the community service, because we're, we're interested in that. We, we appreciate the athletes that use the platform that they have to, to give back to something that'll last longer than their time here. So we really appreciate the time today and hope we get to talk to you again uh, coming up in the future. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, like the rest of us, I'm sure we're all looking forward to this documentary and obviously you know, rest in peace, Doc. We miss you. We love you. And, uh, you know, today we honor you. Thank you so much, Shane. You have yourself a great day. Stay healthy. Thanks, guys. Jeff, you, Jeff, we hear these guys and the reverence that they have for them. Todd mentioned it when we talked to him. It definitely came through talking to Shane. Yeah, I mean, hearing the stories. First of all, Shane, Shane's a showman. The way he talks, the way he tells stories um i miss him i miss having him in town he, he was just a, such a great figure to have here but he you could tell how much he adored this teammate and friend of his and you could tell that it was genuine and um you know it's interesting because at the beginning he seemed a little defensive you know, something that i was that i've kind of picked up on with, with these players is that they're worried about this stuff but the fact is if we all listen to the teammates and hear the whole story you're going to hear a man who was still great, but he was flawed. And that's it. I'm, I'm definitely very intrigued to see how the story is presented tonight. Uh, you and I will have plenty to talk about. We're thinking about doing, what, an early week OTA next week? Maybe yeah. Something uh -huh. on a Monday. Yep. Talk a little Lance documentary part two. Talk a little Roy Halladay documentary. If you were able to binge watch all of the Sixers postseason from 83, which, by the way, NBA planning to come back July 31st. You excited, Jeff? I'll get excited when they're actually going to play. Come on. You're just not going to believe anything till it happens at this point. No, you? no. Uh, you know what? I'll I'll get more enthusiastic about it all if our next guest, when he comes on, tells me that the NHL is really, really, really coming back. That's <laughs> if he's if he's really, really, really coming yeah, back. Yeah, that, that's what I want to hear. He, well, and we're we're going to make Charlie responsible for all of our sports happiness. And Let's that's why we wanted to bring on Charlie O'Connor from The Athletic to hopefully make us happy and tell us how there's going to be hockey some point in our near future. Charlie, how you doing, man? Doing good. How you doing, guys? Uh, we'll, we're, we're doing not great. sure we're, yet. We're waiting to hear from you. Yeah, we we want to hear something good. You you bringing me some good news here on the show today. Let's let's talk about the state of hockey right now. Where are we at with uh, this potential tournament? Seems like the regular season is over now, and we're headed to the postseason. Yeah, that's the plan. I, this is definitely the most optimistic I think anybody has felt about the possibility of, of hockey coming back and you know the 2019-2020 season finishing you know some sort of resolution that that people can accept you know rather than just having been canceled and having no resolution whatsoever. Yeah, it seems possible. Um, they came up with the plan. The the players and the uh, and the owners agreed on this return to play plan, which essentially is a a 2014 tournament. 
Um, the uh, the actual Stanley Cup playoffs, it's interesting the way they're doing this, the actual Stanley Cup playoffs won't start until it's down to 16 teams. But there's going to be this, this play-in round where, uh, where 16 teams basically play against each other to see who the eight teams are that are going to join the other eight teams that all get buys uh, in the actual Stanley Cup playoffs. And then there's going to be a Stanley Cup playoffs as long as, you know, everything – you know, works out the way they're hoping it's going to work out. But this is a big first step. You can't – I think Gary Bettman in one of his availabilities basically said that, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't even think about the possibility of coming back unless we knew what coming back would look like. Now they know what it, what it looks like. Now it's just a matter of whether they can make it work. All right, before we get to the Flyers, I have a question that's probably going to be the wet blanket of this, of this discussion. Exactly, exactly how <laughs> – <laughs> are the Canadian teams going to play the U.S. teams when nobody's allowed to cross the border? Well, they have a – so I believe, and this I think is what, what uh, Daly uh, said, who's, uh, who's one of Bettman's right-hand men, uh, all athletes have been deemed essential workers by the, uh, you know, by the U.S. Uh, Home, Department of Homeland Security. So uh, then it's just a matter of uh, – the one issue they could run into is players from going from Canada to the U.S. is no problem. Um, players going from the U.S. to Canada, they would have to do a 14-day quarantine at this point before they can actually go out and practice. So there's a lot of hurdles. You know, that's a hurdle they potentially would have to have to you know overcome. Where players that you know, let's say the Toronto Maple Leafs, let's say you have American players in the Maple Leafs that are going back to Canada, maybe they have to go back home early to, to quarantine for a bit before uh, before phase two, which is essentially. Uh, the, the players practicing uh, in small groups with their teammates before that can start for uh, for Canadian teams. There's a lot of balls in the air right now, but the good news is that there's a plan. And uh, but yeah, that's that's absolutely something that that has to be taken into account. There's a lot of complications that are going to pop up in this whole thing. Initially, there were going to be multiple host cities. Now it seems like potentially two host cities. Where do we think these games are going to be played? Yeah, there's a lot of options. You know, you mentioned the Canada thing. There were some Canadian cities that were part of it. That said, the current rules that the Canadian government has implemented in the country would make it impossible for a Canadian city to be a hub city. So those cities are on the list, I think, in case Canada changes their rules before, uh, you know, before this would, would kick off. Um, yeah, there's a lot of possibilities. You know, Vegas has been thrown around as a legitimate possibility, I think, for both the NHL and uh, the NBA. So that's certainly up there, especially because of all the hotels and you know the luxury they have there. And I know Vegas has been you know desperate to get people back in their in their city, uh, considering <laughs> how much they're uh, they're focused on tourism and whatnot. So there's a lot of different possibilities. Philadelphia is not one of them, which you know really shouldn't come as a major surprise, considering you know our restrictions are definitely tighter than than they are around most of the country. Uh, but yeah, they have uh, they have some some possibilities. Columbus was another option. So we'll see how it goes. But they wanted to give themselves a lot of different options, I think, just so they weren't locked into only a couple cities in case, you know, there's an outbreak in two months in that city that makes them have to change gears. All right, let's talk Flyers. So the all Flyers right. were, were rolling before all this happened. Um, they were pretty healthy, except for a couple guys. How are they, as, as far as you know, how are they doing as far as everybody being healthy mentally and physically ready to go, including whether or not Nolan Patrick will be back for this. Yeah, all the guys who were dealing with, I guess, traditional injuries, 
Uh, so you had Nate Thompson, you had uh, you had Phil Myers, and you had James Van Riemsdyk. We're all dealing with traditional hockey injuries. Uh, they're all good to go. Uh, JVR was probably the one that was um, that has benefited the most from the pause, if you want to look at it that way, because my understanding is that he would not have been ready for the start of the uh, the regu- regularly scheduled playoffs. He might not have been able to come back until like late April, early May. He's good to go now. You know whether he's a hundred percent or not, I'm not sure, but uh, he's certainly good enough that he could play if they started hockey tomorrow. And I imagine he'll be even healthier if, if they uh, they get going in July, you know, or early August, which is right now the the projected time this would all get back going. As for Nolan Patrick, that's that's still unknown. You know. When we talked to Chuck Fletcher last, he didn't sound super optimistic that Patrick would be good to go for a restart. That said, now that there's more of an idea of when this restart would actually happen, you don't know. My guess is that Patrick would come back to to Philly for a training camp, and they would just kind of go from there and see how he's feeling, see how comfortable he is with with, with the migraine disorder and everything. I wouldn't rule it out. That said – Personally, I'm not super confident. I think they had in their heads that we're shooting for him to be fully ready for next season. But now you're looking at a season possibly restarting in August, which is only a couple months earlier than the than season the next season would have started. So I'm I'm not holding my breath, but I'm hoping because I really want to see the kid back out on the ice. So that 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 leads to one other question: If this is all going to go into August. What are they going to do about next season? Because most athletes need that length of offseason to recover. I know they've had time off now, but then they're going to start up again, and they're going to, are they going to wind down again and start it regularly, or are they going to start late? The, the plan is definitely to start late. Um, you know, it, Obviously, when the exact time the season would start is going to depend on how long it takes to get through the playoffs. Um, so that's still very much up in the air. But both the NHLPA and the owners agree that the, that the players need an offseason. You know, whenever this is done, they need a traditional offseason. And, yeah, the next season will probably start late. It will probably start, you know, assuming they get this done and they get everything finished, it would probably start, you know, December, maybe even January. Because you're talking about they probably want, you know, two and a half months or so at least of, of an actual offseason for these guys to recuperate. Um, especially the guys who were in the playoffs and whatnot. So, uh, so yeah, I, I certainly would expect next season to start late. Um, plus, there's an added benefit for, for the teams as well, is that the later they start, the better chance there is that maybe they'll be able to get fans back in the stands for next season. So, you know, if, you, if they were to start this in October, I don't know how realistic that is. Maybe by early next year, maybe, you know, you know, God willing, there's a vaccine or something, and maybe they can have fans in the stands and their revenue goes up. So I, I would definitely expect next season to start late, absolutely. So we mentioned how they're going to go right to the playoffs, sort of a different format, and then Jeff mentioned how the Flyers were hot going into it. So Flyers end up in the top four. Explain this little round robin we're going to play for seeding of the top four team thing going on that the Flyers are going to be a part of. Sure. So that was... That was something that the NHL and the NHLPA agreed to because the teams that were going to get this by, essentially, they wouldn't have to play in the playing round, they expressed the totally reasonable concern that they would be at a disadvantage in the first round of the playoffs if they hadn't played a competitive game of hockey for five months and they were going up against a team that just kind of played themselves back into hockey shape by going through this playing round. So they came up with this idea for this round-robin what it looks to be like a three-game tournament where 
the four teams in the conference basically play each other once. And uh, there, there should be, I think there's going to be a couple exhibition games that are more or less going to be preseason before that gets kicked off. But then there's going to be this round robin, you know, the Flyers who play one game against Tampa Bay, Boston, and Washington, uh, one game each. And then the records of each of the teams uh, from those three games would decide who is the one seed, who's the two seed, who's the three seed, and who's the four seed. Now, the Flyers come into this as a four seed. They had the fourth, you know, the fourth best record out of out of those four teams. So for them, this is kind of a, a win-win. You know, either either they stay where they are, which whatever, that's where they're going to be anyway, or they do well in this and they jump up the uh, they jump up the seating. The only the only negative they run into is that because they come in with the the lowest re- the lowest seed, the worst record, they would lose any tiebreakers. So if two teams, you know, if they finish two and one and Boston finishes two and one, Boston gets the better seed, even if the Flyers won the head-to-head matchup, which is fair, you know, the advantage you get for having the better regular season record. But the Flyers have to be looking at this as, you know, this is all gravy. You know, worst worst case scenario, we're exactly where we, we probably should be. Best case scenario, maybe we jump to the, the two seed or the one seed and get an easier first round matchup. So what is what does Coach Fletcher think? Does he think that this is all gonna work out and does he think that this is this the Flyers are in a good position? You know, it's I think everyone's just kind of in a wait and see approach. Um, you know, obviously, you know, Chuck Fletcher wants hockey to get back started, just like everybody does. I'm sure Elaine Vigneault has the, uh, you know, has the same, the same feeling. This is, this is what they do. And, you know, especially for someone like, uh, you know, like Fletcher and Vigneault for that matter, you know, the season was looking like it was playing out pretty well, you know, Fletcher and, uh, and Vigneault, these are guys that they want their, all the work they put in over the, over the off season, this season, even during the pause, they want it all to, uh, you know, to be rewarded in some way. So I'm sure they're rooting for it. Now, what they what they feel about, you know, whether it's going to happen, I get the sense that the NHL is optimistic as a whole, that they're going to be able to pull this off. Now, they know that there's still a lot of things they need to, uh, they need to, they need to do. They need to come up with agreements with the players about safety concerns. They need to make decisions. You know, there are some players in the NHL that have type 1 diabetes. Are they going to play? Do, are, they, are they not allowed to play? How is this going to work? There's a lot of things they need to decide, but I definitely get the impression from the people I talk to in and around the NHL that there's a feeling that we're going to get this done. So now you just kind of got to cross your fingers and hope. Well, we definitely hope that there is hockey for you to cover and report on and hope we can get you back when that happens to talk about what comes next. Really appreciate the time, Charlie. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Take care of yourself. Stay healthy. Yeah, you too. Jeff, it, it, it is sort of a, a win for the Flyers, one, that there's hockey back, but two, I guess, and I hadn't really win, thought It's about a win it. for me. <laughs> I feel Why? better. He, he, well, he, he answered the best he could what I wanted to hear, which is, are we going to have hockey again? And I think if we're going to have hockey, I think we're going to have probably every sport as long as things don't get worse, except for maybe Major League Baseball. It's a win for me, Jeff, because mm-hmm. it means that I can finish my fantasy hockey season. Oh, really? That's big thing? <laughs> I'm very excited about it. I still have it. baseball because I have the NC Dinos that are just kicking butt. So. I know. Did your jersey come yet? No, it hasn't come yet. You got to get on that track. I that I don't know what N- to do with this. It's NFL, a long way from here to Korea. So NFL says they're still planning to play for full stadiums. You uh, think that's just pie in the sky? Well, if you could see me rolling my eyes, you'd see that I'm rolling my eyes. I'm not... I can. We may not be in front of each other, but how, are, we have how, video. Yeah, but nobody else can see. Whoa. Oh, okay. What's well, radio anyway? <laughs> really, we're going to have full stadiums. 
full stadiums. Think about think about what that means. How's that going to happen? It's I, not. I think that that's rather unrealistic if they plan to start the season on time. But that's what they're saying. So take that for what it's worth. Jeff, five minutes left. We talked about your TV watching this weekend. I want to go to the TV watching last weekend. I loved the match, too, with yeah. Tiger and Peyton against so Brady I. and Mickelson. Uh, <laughs> Tiger was on. He didn't miss a fairway. I yeah, know it was just you know, a charity match, but he looked good. Yeah, but the, the, the funny part of it was Tiger was the least interesting part of it. He was. Not that there was anything wrong with what he did, because he played golf, which is which is what you want him to do. But from an entertainment standpoint, he was the least entertaining person, except for when he looked at the camera and said, this is what I've had to deal with all these years, because Phil just doesn't shut up. Nick, Nick Foles is now a folk hero once again, as yeah. offered up to be Tom Brady's caddy. The Eagles apparently still haunt Tom Brady, but the Falcons do not. So I have uh, a question. You know, you always see these these made-for-television events, and you know how much they preparation they put into it. Did Tom Brady just happen to have an extra pair of pants in his cart? Did you see his tweet after he split his pants? <laughs> no, I, I guess lots of memes afterwards. I but, guess my yeah. pants took social distancing seriously or something like that. <laughs> I mean, the, the the Tampa Bay Tom Brady is much more fun than the New England Tom Brady. Well, I'll say that. He doesn't have Bill Belichick looking over his shoulder the whole time. He This is Tom Brady's chance to have fun. He can go out and have fun. He doesn't have to. He's got nothing to lose. He's he's playing with house money, right? Look, he is nothing's playing gonna, with house nothing's money. Nothing's going to impact his legacy. He will be when he retires. No matter what he does in Tampa Bay, people will forget it. Just like when Joe Montana played. People don't really remember what he did when he went to Kansas City. You just this is the yeah. end of his career. Unless okay, he talk wins about some Reggie, more stuff. Reggie Bush for just one minute. Please. Sure, but I do want to make one comment before we do Reggie Bush. What's that? I do want to see more athletes mic'd up at games. And I want to talk to you next week about you, the traditionalist generally, about whether you like hearing more of the athletes. No, so I'm just going to put that it. out there. With spring, with spring training, I really liked it. The baseball okay. players, but you you have to mic the right guys. That's, yes. that's part of this is knowing who you're micing. All right, you got three minutes left to get to Reggie Bush, who right. is concerned about uh, college athletes getting paid. Though, in fairness, he did say that he was taken out of context or something. Oh yeah, they. So all, now that I've given you know why, that disclaimer, you know why he said that because of social media backlash on him. Now that I've given that disclaimer, you yeah. go ahead. No, the no, floor no. Why, is yours. Why, before, beforehand, why don't why don't you read the quote? From from Reggie Bush. Go ahead. Go for it. Because I can't. Uh, you can't with a straight face. You no. just. Yeah. So he said guidance is the one thing that young athletes coming through the college system miss so much. I missed on it. They're about to start paying college athletes. This is something they've never experienced before. And it's going to destroy some people if their foundation's not in the right place. Really? <laughs> so so he he's saying that there is a problem if they actually implement a system that's legal and educate young athletes on how to spend and save the money versus Reggie Bush and his generation where they were getting paid illegally, but somehow we're going to handle it better. You know, sometimes think about it. It, it for him to say that of all people, the guy who had his Heisman taken away, the guy who led to all those sanctions on USC, one of the revered programs in college football, He's the guy. He's the last person that should be talking about saying that they shouldn't get paid legally. You know, sometimes I mm -hmm. see a story and I say this has Jeff's name all over it. 
and I send it to you and I set a timer for yeah. how long it will take for you to respond. How long was it you? this time? Not long at all yeah, for really? this one. You were all over this one. <laughs> it's. I don't think that he's the right messenger. I, I think that he could have, again, we talk about PR. He definitely could have said it differently because I think that, look. What could uh, he have possibly said? Look, I'll be honest, at 18, yeah. my parents don't like the fact that my whole wardrobe was free T-shirts from opening credit cards. I had like right. eight credit cards. So okay. financial management for anybody at that age is a good thing. Saying that you don't think they should get paid on the table after you got paid under the table is That's not the, the right way to say this. He, he didn't go with, look, when I was 18, I made a lot of mistakes. That's not what he started with. That's not what he finished with. It should have been, look, I did it wrong. And I wish they would have had this system back then. And I hope that they have things implemented to talk to them about what to do and what to stay away from. That that would have been the mature thing to say. But see, here's another example, just like when we started the show, of somebody who doesn't use the benefit of wisdom as they get older. He uh, just hi. says something to me that, quite frankly, was selfish. They have a blind spot in their hindsight. It's the part where they're culpable. Mm -hmm. It's everybody else is responsible for this, and I'm going to tell the story the way that I want to. And look, I, I, my younger days, I did plenty of telling the story the way that I want to, so I've got some good experience with that. But it's, uh, yeah, I knew that you wouldn't like that one very much. All right, Jeff, so last yeah. minute. Um, you're going to educate your son a little bit this weekend with those Sixers games, right? Oh, I'm not going to educate him. They're going He's going to have the education of now watching 37-year-old basketball and watch those Sixers teams, which I asked you beforehand. I don't know if you gave me the answer before we went on the air. How many Hall of Famers were in that 1983 finals? I think nine, right? Yeah. Four, I mean, there were four, four from the Sixers, Sixers and five from the and, Lakers. And five on the Lakers. And, and, I'll and tell so you next watching that's going to be incredible. I'll tell you next week and search the Prism archives for video of me around 82, 83, 84. Oh, you know what? I hope they dancing, show Prism commercials. Dancing on the court with Big Shot somewhere. How, how it exists out there. How great I, would that be? I would love for it to be on Prism or see Prism commercials. That would be fantastic. Jeff, any last words before we say goodbye this week? Picturing you with set shot is enough. I don't need Perf to say anything else. That was profound. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.